You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. You can be seated. Good morning to all of you. So here's King Solomon. He has everything. Like he has pursued it all and he has it all. He has houses, he has land, he has vineyards, he has money, he has intellect, he has women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He has gold and silver and wine and and servants, but he's empty. I mean, the conclusion is you can have a full fridge, a full house, a full closet, a full bank account, a full social life, a full mind, a full liquor cabinet, a full bedroom, a full resume, and still have an empty soul. Solomon realizes that all he has tried to gain was just a chasing of the wind. I would say a chasing of the cyclone, but we learned yesterday that cyclones really aren't that powerful about six o'clock last night. Marcus, I aged three years that last three minutes of that game yesterday. So if I look older today, it's because I was watching the last three minutes of that game. I'm hoping you're ha- you have a copy of God's Word with you. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes together. If today is your first day here in a long time, or first day ever at Highland, we're just walking verse by verse, scripture by scripture, chapter by chapter through the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's go to that really intriguing book of wisdom in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1 together. I always encourage you to have God's Word with you. It is living, it is active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon is writing, but he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words to us today. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Stop right there. Solomon begins this chapter by speaking to to worshipers. The truth is everyone everywhere is a worshiper. Every American is a worshiper. Every college student is a worshiper. Every human is a worshiper. Every soul worships something or worships someone. I guess the question we need to kind of wrestle with today is simply this question. What is, what is your object of worship? What do you worship? Who do you worship? The word worship is tied even in etymology in the, in the, in the form of the word to the word worth. So when you talk about worship, what you're really asking yourself is what carries the greatest weight of worth to me? What carries the greatest weight of worth to you? It's a really important question that that we start with today. What is your object of worship? If you're having a hard time thinking through, what is it that I truly worship? Let me give you these questions. Who do you live for? Whose approval do you long for? What do you live for? What is it that that motivates you or or what defines you? Those five questions will kind of help you determine in a little inventory of the mind, an inventory of the heart today, who it is that you truly worship. Uh, Who do you live for? Do you live for yourself? Do you live for for friends? Do you live for for family? Whose approval do you long for that that you really need? Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, parents? What do you live for? Like what, what energizes you when you get up in the morning? Is it success? Is it an addiction? What motivates you? Money? 
fame, fear? Uh, what is it that, that defines you? Is it your past? Is it your looks? Is it your accomplishments, your successes? Is it your grades? Or is it God and, and his glory? Could that be the answer to some of those questions? Honestly, for you, could it be the answer to all those questions? I mean, the God of the Bible cares a whole lot about worship. As our creator and, and as our king, he rightly deserves to be the sole object of our worship. We were made by God. We were made for God. So worship is to be to the right God. In the right way, with the right heart. Let's pick it up in verse 2. The, the instructions to the worshipers continue, continues. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Solomon is reminding us right here in verse 2, verse 3, reminding us as worshipers that when we're coming to, to meet God and, and worship, we are to, verse 2, not be rash with our mouth. And verse 2, not to be hasty to utter a, a, a word. He says in verse 3 that it's a fool who uses many words. Now the language is strong because the issue is important. No, not constantly running our mouths in the presence of God really helps us with, with two errors of worship. First of all, that somehow we come into the presence of God with a lot of words to impress him as if our words would be impressive to God. But secondly, another common error in, in worship is that we're meeting with God to give him a long list of things he needs to do. Our demands, our orders, if you will. Now let me just say God loves you. God, he loves us and he serves us constantly with his grace. He, he serves us consistently with his promises, but, but he doesn't take orders from us. I can't reach all the spots on my back to scratch when I have an itch. If I start a movie after 8.30 p.m. at night, I'm not going to see the end of that movie. I, I can't add without using my my fingers. I still struggle as a 52-year-old figuring out which way is left and which way is right. I still have to think about it before I just turn left or, or turn right. I guess I'm telling you all that to say, who am I to rush into God's presence with a high word count of all my demands, all my orders, and all my wordiness? Practically speaking, the second part of verse 2, for God is in heaven and you are on earth is a reminder of who he is and where he is, a reminder of who we are and, and where we are. Really, it's a reminder of his complete, absolute sovereignty and our inability to see what's going to happen in the next five seconds. Verses 4 through 6, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. That should be our memory verse for the week, right? <laughs> Let not our mouths lead us into sin. How much trouble have I gotten to in, in my life because of my mouth? And don't, don't say yes. You have to say yes to yourself also. Don't amen that I said that. That's an amen for all of you as well. 
mean, that needs to be on our T-shirts, bumper stickers, like as, as the, the screensaver on our phones. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not even say before the messenger, which is an angel, that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of, of your hands? In other words, it's a pretty heavy passage right here, verse 4 through 6. It's saying, don't make vows to manipulate God. He does not, verse 4, delight in fools who, who try to scheme God somehow. Solomon is stressing here not to make rash and foolish and empty promises to God for such things. Verse 6, make God angry. Verse 7 is very interesting. In fact, I think it's kind of the pivotal verse of this entire chapter. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. There's that chasing after the wind. There's that nothingness. But God, but God is the one you must fear. It's, it's a phrase we don't use a whole lot from the pulpit anymore. That we as the people of God should fear God. And I think sometimes it's because we have placed the New Testament alone on top of our salvation and thinking now as the New Testament believers, I don't need to be afraid of God. I don't need to be fearful of God. I don't need to be fearful in his presence. I need to come into his presence with, with confidence and with, with courage. And certainly the writer of Hebrews tells us to do that. So which is it, New Testament Christian? Should we fear God when we come into his presence or have confidence when we come into his presence? The answer is yes. Our knees should still shake when we're in his presence. I mean, you have confidence now because of the work of Christ that we can come into his presence as daughters and as sons. But let me just say, daughters and sons of God, our knees should still shake in his presence. Here's what you can write in your notes somewhere if you want to. The dividing line between confidence and arrogance is the completed work of Christ. When you're coming into his presence, which, which is it? Do you, you come in with confidence? Do you kind of come in with arrogance? Really, you need to look at, at the cross of Christ, how humbling it is. How humbling it is that we're even able to approach God because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. We even have access to God. You cannot be puffed up with pride and in his presence at the same time. But here's good news. Here's the gospel. You can stand before God. Because of Jesus, because of his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, we do have access to God and we can have confidence when we come before him. But I think we're seeing here, when you see the New Testament and the Old Testament alike speaking to us about the presence of God, we can come to him and our words need to be few because we're such in awe of God and his son who has made an entrance for us and to the king's presence. For, for non-Christians, maybe you're not a believer here today. Maybe you're watching online, you're not a Christian. What does it mean to fear God and to not be in Christ? Well, really it means that you need to consider your eternal fate. When you stand one day before this holy and righteous and perfect God, a God who will punish those who have not accepted the grace of Jesus who have not believed upon the rescue of, of Christ. And so there should be fear of God even for those who are not in Christ. And this kind of fear is, is sobering. It's a sobering fear. And it should give you, non-Christian friend, an urgency. The good news is this. For those who are not in Christ Jesus, you can turn to Christ Jesus today. And find life 
peace and forgiveness and joy. But what about fear for those who are Christians? What does it mean to fear God and to also be in Christ? It means that we live purposely this God-centered life. A life that, that honors God, that respects God, that considers God in, in all things, in our relationships, in our time, our schedule, our spending. That this kind of fear is, is not terror. It's a respect. It's a response just as a, a young child would have toward a parent who loved them deeply. So really the bottom line, if you will, I, I think I can package verse 1 through 7 all together and just give you, give you this one sentence. Meeting God in worship is to invite the king to rule and to reign in our lives. Now, that's what it means. Worship is not just about singing. It's so much more than singing. It's not less than singing. But it's coming into his presence. It's laying our lives before him. So if you're going to meet with God, our words should be few. But it's an invitation. Jesus, King, God of the universe, would you rule and reign in my lives? And we see, in our lives, would you see right here in verse 1 through 7, we don't justify our sin in front of him. We don't make empty promises when we come into the presence of God. We don't try to impress him with our wordiness. We don't waste time accusing him or questioning him. That would be such a foolish way to live. Worshiping is not just declaring that God is the king, but God is our king. This is worship. Verses 8 through, through 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. Verse 9 is interesting. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Really, verse 8 asks the age-old question. If God is real and God is good, why is there injustice in our world? If God is sovereign and he is a capable God, why is there injustice and oppression? You see that word listed there in verse 8. Why is there oppression everywhere? Well, I love that the Holy Spirit told Solomon to write this down in verse 8. Don't be astonished when this happens. Like it's almost the expectation of a fallen world. It's the expectation of humanity that has rebelled against God, who has walked away from God. Oh, there will be oppression. There will be injustice. Do not marvel at this. Do not be amazed by this. Don't be astonished at this. And then we, we see an answer that's a really clear answer when the Holy Spirit tells Solomon to tell us today, oh, everyone has a supervisor. Everyone has someone who is an authority over them. And you can just keep going up. If I see Solomon saying you have this official, that official has an official, and that official has an official over them, where eventually you, you land on the capital O official, God himself. In other words, on the last day, God is the final tribunal. He's the final judge. There's an interesting verse that I've thought of a whole lot this past couple of years. Just looking at our culture, looking at our society, and just kind of watching what's happening around us. It's in Psalm chapter 37, it's verse, uh, verse 18. And it says that God places the wicked in slippery places. God places the wicked in, in slippery places. You know, we often look at the wicked in our world today, the evil in our world today, the, the oppressors in our world today, the abusers in our world today. And we think, God, why did you give them a stage? Why do they have a microphone? 
Why do they have influence? Why are people following them? And yet I'm reminded constantly, one, again, that everybody has an overseer. Everyone eventually has accountability in their lives. And God often places the wicked in slippery places. In other words, it may seem that the oppressive people, the evil people have prominence right now, have a stage right now, but they will come to ruin because there is a judge. In verse 9, I don't know what to tell you about verse 9. It's a difficult verse. In fact, in your Bible, there might be a little notation next to, it, next to it that says obscure in Hebrew, which means like the wisest Hebrew scholars out there have no idea what verse 9 is. I'll, I'll, I'll take a run at it. I think it might mean that even the king has to depend on God for the sun and the rain for his fields to be cultivated. You see the context there. There's always someone over somebody. So you get all the way to the king, which seems like in a human aspect would be the highest in the land, but yet there's a God even over the king that the king must depend on for the rain and the sun for these cultivated fields. That's my best guess. Verse 10 through verse 20 deals a lot about money and wealth. And I knew you're really excited about that because you came to church today to hear a sermon on money. I am, I am sure it's one of your favorite topics. But you know, the Bible doesn't just have two categories of money. It doesn't just talk about the rich and the poor. It actually has four categories. That there's two kinds of rich people. The unrighteous rich and the righteous rich. And in the Bible, there's two kinds of poor people. There's the unrighteous poor and there's the righteous poor. I mean, you see, poverty theology and prosperity theology are both unbiblical. God is far more concerned with how you receive money and wealth and how you spend money and wealth and how you share your money and your wealth with others. It's not how much wealth you have. The Bible does not talk about that. The Bible talks about what you do with your wealth. In other words, he's much more concerned with your righteousness than he is your riches. So just think about some of the Bible characters off the top of your head right now. You can probably find them in one of those four categories. Either the unrighteous rich, the righteous rich, the unrighteous poor, or the righteous poor. Or if you want to, bring it to 2021. Think about people you do know. I mean, how, what category would they fit into? Are they righteous or unrighteous in their riches? Are they righteous or unrighteous in their, in their poverty or in their poor state? And if you want to be really honest with yourself, and most of us don't like to be, which of those categories would you find yourself in? Now, if you're a college student, I know you're poor, so I guess the question is, are you righteous poor or unrighteous poor? <laughs> but for all of us, like, which, which category would we be identified with if, if God were to come down and write on a piece of paper which one you are right now? I mean, what, what would he say of you? What do you even understand of, of yourself? Righteous rich, unrighteous rich. Righteous poor, unrighteous poor. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. It's the chasing of the wind. It's a nothingness. It's a, it's a morning mist. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but just to see all these things happening with his own eyes? Verse, verse 12, sweet, I love this, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or eats much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And so I right hear verse 10 through 12, we see a story or a picture, if you will, of the unrighteous rich and the righteous poor. The unrighteous rich, we see right here, they never have enough money, so they don't sleep well. You know, a rich man is always trying to make more money so that someone doesn't come and take away the toys that he just bought with all of his money. Wealth, so important. 
Wealth does not satisfy, it complicates. You see, once the unrighteous have money, all they want, we see here, is just more money. The unrighteous person, if they, if they make $5 million, they're going to spend $4.9 million. They will spend whatever they have. The, the, the Hunt brothers up in Fort Worth, the multi-billionaire Hunt family up there, one of the Hunt brothers was asked um, a while back, sir, I understand that you make $1 million a day. And he said, son, I would starve if I just made $1 million a day. Like you... You spend what you make when you're unrighteous. You, you can't hold on to it. A, a person who's unrighteous in their wealth just wants more and more money. But I love verse 12 because it probably speaks of a lot of people in here. It speaks of the worker. Hebrew um, abad, which means the servant, the, the, the blue-collar person, the, the kind of the lower end of the, of the wage earners. It, it probably means in, in, in Hebrew, bather student. But it speaks of someone that doesn't have much at all. But I love this. The righteous poor sleep just fine. They know that what they have is, is from God. They're not longing or lusting for more and more things, more and more money. They sleep just fine. But the full belly of the rich person, he can't sleep. He's anxious about all the things that, that he has. He's anxious about, if you will, verse 10, verse 11, about that increase and, and all the things that are happening with his business. Verse 13 there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, to his disadvantage. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And, and he is a father of a son, but he, meaning the son, has nothing in his hand. There was no passing down, verse 15. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also, verse 16, a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness and much vexation. Your Bible might use the word grief there. And in sickness and in, and in anger. What we're seeing here in this passage is that money it ends up mocking the unrighteous. Have you ever considered before that one of God's great mercies towards you is that he has restricted the amount of money that you make? Have you considered before that God may actually be very merciful to you by restricting the amount of wealth or riches or income that you have? Some of you are thinking right now, God, stop showing me mercy. I just want to see some money instead. I mean, could it be there's a lot of us in this house that if we had a lot of money, we would melt. Our marriages would melt. Our testimony would melt. Probably our trust in God and God alone would dissipate. Have you considered before that God actually may be showing you great mercy by not giving you great wealth? So you're not constantly worried about the more and what you have and keeping what you have and sadly perhaps even replacing God with, with money. The Bible really never speaks poorly of money. It just speaks poorly of the love of money. In fact, we saw that back in verse 10. He who loves money will, will never be satisfied with, with money. So the Bible speaks a lot about the love of money. Let me give you a thought about the love of money. The love of money means that your heart and hope are in your wealth. But where your heart is, your treasure will be there also so that your identity, your joy, your security are found in your bank account. 
That's what it means biblically to have a love of money. Your, your heart is in your wealth. Your hope is in your wealth. Your joy, your identity, your security are all found in the numbers attached to your bank account, your savings account, your checking account. And here's what's sad about that, because Christian, our identity, our joy, and our security should be found in Jesus. How often we replace that with money. In other words, money can become your functional God. No matter who you say your actual God is. How ironic that our dollar bills say in God we trust, but the more we lust for those dollars, the less we actually trust God. There are two TV shows that if I'm flipping through the channels, I'll stop. I, like, I have to watch. I'm debating right now whether to even tell you these TV shows, but I think <laughs> I've already started the sentence, so I guess I need to, to finish. Two TV shows, oh, my wife hates both of them. Like, when I stop playing these shows, like, I can't turn it. Like, I'm not sure what happens mentally. Like, I just, I, it's like a train wreck I have to watch. And, and if I keep it on more than five seconds, my wife will stand up and walk out of the room. And even that, I'm like so attached. Like I, I, I got to watch this and it's, uh, don't judge me, don't judge me on this. It's, it's Dr. Pimple Popper and, and Hoarders. Like I, those, those are on, like I have to watch. Like I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't turn away. All right, it was really nice being your pastor all these years. Good luck finding the, the next person up here. I just, I, I, I have to watch those things. And, and hoarders, like when they walk in, like it's so, it's, it's sad. It's so, it's, it's, it's horrifying to me that these people, their, 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 their thoughts have turned so upside down that they think if I can just hold on to all of these things, man, if I can just hold on to all of these things, maybe I'll finally find some kind of satisfaction. It's, it's, it's incredibly sad and shocking to see their thinking has become so irrational that if I can just have more things, I'll be happier. Wow, when you say it out loud. If I could just have more things, I'd be happier. Solomon says right here, you, you've come into the world naked, or, or naked, if you're from Texas, naked and with nothing in your bank account. And when all is said and done and, and your life is over, you, you, just, you also leave naked without any credit cards. You can't take it with you. And if you store up treasures here on earth, there isn't even a safe place to put your profits. Real estate markets, they, they crash, investments go bad, the stock market turns. And the longer you keep your cash stacked, the, the politicians that you voted for find a way to eat away at your money like, like a termite in a house. So what should we do with our money? And what, what should we do? Let me just kind of give you a statement that will take us from Genesis to Revelation in this. What should we do biblically with our money? Here's a good practical word today from this passage. Give the first fruits to God. That's always a wise investment. Then pay your bills. I mean, whatever you owe, you pay, Proverbs. Invest some wisely. And then just be very generous with others. There really is a purpose for wealth. There really is a purpose for your paycheck. There is a, a purpose for the money that you do make and younger people that you will make one day in life. What do you do with your wealth? What do you do with your dollar bills? What do you do with your riches? You give the first fruits to God. Before you go to H-E-B, before you go to the Starbucks, before you, you spend it on all these other things, you give the very first fruits to God. You pay your bills, pay what's, what's due. Proverbs tells us over and over again, invest wisely, invest some of it wisely, but always be generous to others. 
And believe it or not, Solomon lands this plane in a really nice place. He doesn't always land planes nicely, but he does really well here at the end of chapter 5. So let's pick it up in verse 18 and finish it out. Behold, behold what I've seen to be good and fitting, (laughs) I love this, is to eat. Amen. I knew I loved you, Solomon. I knew you were going to land in good places. Is to eat. Eat and drink. And find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. For the few days, and here's, here's, here's reality, the few days that we have of life. The few days of life that God has given him, for this is his lot. This is our lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth or, or possessions, power, your Bible might say influence, to enjoy those things. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I know some of you come to Highland on Sunday morning and you're thinking, hey preacher guy, you give us too much theology. Just tell me how to live my life on Monday morning. Here's your Monday morning how to live your life. Enjoy food and drink. I mean, it starts with lunch. I love this. Enjoy food and drink. Work hard. I mean, toil. That's the word for work with sweat. Work hard. Accept your lot in life. Whatever lot you're in right now, accept that lot in life and then enjoy every gift that God has given you. That breath you just took. A gift. The sun coming up this morning in Waco. A gift. Family, friends. I get that heartbeat. A gift every day. A gift. This is what Solomon says is good, verse 18, and fitting. Enjoy what God has given you. But remembering the first seven verses of this chapter, let our words be few. He is the God of heaven and here we are just on earth. And that realization, would you stand quietly and let's enjoy the silence for just a few moments being in his presence. A God who is here with us.